Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode 17 of the Unsunday Show. I'm really glad you're joining me today. I hope that this episode finds you alive and well. And it's an episode that I've been looking forward to sharing with you for a while now. I've had a very interesting couple of weeks. We got back from a cross-country road trip, and I, I got pretty sick. Got pneumonia, actually, and was down and out for quite a while. And just now starting to spring back a little bit. So I couldn't wait to get to the to the podcast booth here and to talk to you and to update you on some stuff and talk about what's... Uh, the subject that I want to talk about in this episode, which really has to do with restoring fallen pastors. It's been an interesting 10 days or so. I've listened to a couple of different podcasts on uh, restoring fallen pastors, you know, asking the question, can fallen pastors be restored? And, you know, what that looks like and how that works and kind of an interesting question. You know, I, I think that the question itself is very telling in terms of how we think of the ecclesia, how we think of the church. Because really, when we ask the question, can a fallen pastor be restored? We kind of need to take that question apart piece by piece and ask what we mean by, first of all, fallen and, and pastor. And then can they be restored? We have to ask the question, can they be restored to what? What are we talking about here? Do we mean, can they be restored to Jesus? Do we think that if someone sins that they're somehow, their relationship with Jesus is no longer in place and they need to be restored to him? Do we think that by our sinning, if that's what we, if that's what we mean by, you know, fallen, that if we've sinned, does that somehow, does God's opinion of us somehow change? You know, these are questions we have to ask. We need to clarify, well, what do we mean by that question? Can fallen pastors be restored? As I mentioned, I listened to two podcasts within the last 10 days or so. The first one had to do with uh, a megachurch pastor who had uh, lost his position in the church, his position of of pastoring, due to an emotional affair with someone. and, And then, as a result of that, what surfaced was just kind of his arrogance over the years that he had hurt a lot of people just by being arrogant and by being brutal. And people began to come forward and, and tell their story. And so, you know, he got into this counseling session and, and the whole, the whole point of the counseling was to restore this pastor. And again, we have to ask the question, restore to what? What does that mean? And in light of the ecclesia, you know, where there's not to be any hierarchy, I mean, that's obviously what we've got everywhere, it's hierarchy, but really in Jesus' ecclesia and the one he's building, according to his own words, there isn't supposed to be that kind of hierarchy. I'm thinking of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10, starting in in verse 42, when it says that Jesus called them, the disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And again, that's uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. And that's in response to James and John's request to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in his kingdom. And so Jesus had to patiently explain to them that that isn't how it works. That within the kingdom of God, you know, those who want to be great must be servant of all. And there isn't this hierarchy, uh, top-down authority kind of thing within the ecclesia. That doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. And so I'm assuming from that that when we ask the question, or when the question gets asked, can fallen pastors be restored, we mean can a pastor who's been caught in some sin be re-exalted back to a position of CEO within organized religion? I think that's what we mean. Because really, in our relationship with Jesus, where our sin has been removed from us as far as the East is from the West, and we're told that he doesn't remember our sins anymore, we haven't been severed from Christ. We can't out-sin God's grace. God's opinion of us, as I said earlier, doesn't change because I sin. God still loves me. God's grace still covers me. I'm still the righteousness of God in Christ, even in my worst moments. This is my identity. This is who I am in him. And so when we say, can a fallen pastor be restored? I hope we're not talking about God's opinion of us. Can I get God to think different of me by groveling or, you know, by repentance or, or by expressing more remorse? Or, you know, some other type of, of works groveling where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm humbling myself and I'm kind of scraping myself with pottery and sitting in ashes, you know, kind of an Old, Te- Old Testament imagery there. But, you know, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by being restored? You know, God's opinion of me doesn't change. Even when I sin, God's opinion of me doesn't change. And it never will. I am still a partaker of the divine nature at my worst moment, even though uh, I don't feel that way at my worst moment, I still am. That's how he views me. And so when we say, when we ask the question, can a fallen pastor be restored? We have to mean, can they be put back into a hierarchical top-down authority position as a CEO within a nonprofit organization? That's what we mean. And in this instance of this fallen megachurch pastor that I was listening to who had an emotional affair, and and then people came forth and, and said, you know, you just kind of have an arrogant attitude. To his credit, he acknowledged those things. He wasn't trying to hide them. He said, yeah, that's true. I see that now. But his goal initially in the counseling session was to get back into that position of authority over people. And when it looked more and more like that wasn't going to happen, this person settled for training other pastors. And so you've got this pastor training other pastors to launch them, as it were, into this same hierarchical position that he lost by virtue of his own actions. Now, let me say this at this point, too, and I'm not excusing this at all. But when you put that much pressure on one person, there's going to be problems. There's going to be issues. There's going to be, it's going to get ugly because In the ecclesia, in the church, where you're to have every member functioning and the priesthood of all believers going on, to put all of the pressure on one person to do everything, that person's going to crumble. It's just a matter of time. And furthermore, I'd just like to mention that, you know, you have this 
former pastor training other pastors, you know, we outsource this thing, don't we? Paul told the Thessalonians, know those who labor among you. And yet we don't really know those who labor among us because the system tells us that, you know, we need to be pastor centric in our thinking. And if we don't have, you know, a pastor present, then we need to go look for one. And the last thing we're going to do is, is look for those among us because We've been told again by the system that we have to have somebody who's been, you know, seminary trained or Bible college trained or both or, you know, some kind of a theological degree on their wall in order to be qualified, in order to uh, be able to be the pastor. And we, we put everything, our whole focus is on that one person, on that pastor, and we outsource it. We don't even know this person. We bring him in and we, you know, maybe hear a message or two, you know, maybe spend a lunch together or dinner together with the other leaders, you know, whatever, on a weekend, just a, a minimal amount of time. And then we look at their resume and we see where they've been schooled. And if, they're, if they've been schooled in a uh, theological tradition that agrees with our tribal doctrine, then they're in. But really, we, we, don't, we don't really know them, do we? They're not really among us. You know, when we look into the New Testament, it seems like the elders that were in the New Testament were living with the people. They were part of the group. They were part of the ecclesia. And they, it became apparent by their spiritual giftedness over time that they were shepherds, that they had these spiritual gifts of shepherding. But that's irrelevant today. Today we look for a supposed calling you know, we, we, we say, well, I've been called to do this. This is what God's called me to do. And so we kind of sit down and shut up and we go, well, how do you answer that? You've been called. Okay, well, end of discussion. But that isn't how the New Testament uses the word called. Now, I know I've mentioned that in previous episodes, and I don't remember which episodes, so I can't refer back to you. But maybe we'll come back and talk about that subject again in a, in a future episode. But Scripture doesn't use the word called in that way. You know, Paul said, if anyone desires uh, to be an elder, he desires a good thing. He didn't say, you know, if you've been called by God to be an elder, then get in there and get after it. Because after all, it's a calling of God. And and who has the right to stand in your way? Because after all, you've been called by God. But that isn't how Scripture uses the word call. It's never used in that sense. Never. Tradition has handed us that. Our ordination councils insist that we talk about our calling. I remember... I remember that very well, both talking about my own supposed calling and hearing about the supposed calling of others as I sat in their ordination councils. And so you're expected to be able to tell the story about how God has called you to this particular uh, function of being a pastor. But I can tell you that you know, there's a big difference between being called and having, having a desire. And we confuse the two. We confuse having a desire to do this, like Paul said, with a calling. And then we use this calling idea as kind of a trump card to get other people to submit to us, to do what we want them to do, to obey us, and to submit to our opinions and ideas and views. Because after all, I've been called. And so there's this kind of mystical meaning associated with you know, how we use the word called. Oh, you've been called. Well, who might argue with your calling? But people, you know, this isn't rocket science. Look at the New Testament. Look at the New Testament and see how it uses the word call or called or calling. 
you might be surprised. And again, we'll come back probably in a future episode and develop that a little bit more, or at least a segment of a future episode. But instead of doing what Paul said and knowing those who labor among us, we we view the Bible as a textbook, and we look for people with a degree in the textbook that have you know successfully mastered the tribal doctrine in our group to the point where we think that that qualifies them irregardless of spiritual giftedness. There's a lot of people who have a piece of paper on their wall who have no shepherding gifts. I've met them. You have too. Maybe you know of some right now. But what we look for is that piece of paper on the wall. Well, in this first podcast that I listened to, you know, with this with this man who had lost his position due to emotional affair and, and due to, you know, just a general arrogance and pride from his position, wasn't really demonstrating a giftedness to be a shepherd. But if he knew all the right things to say, if he knew all the right doctrines, if he could quote Greek and Hebrew, then that seems to be the qualification for us today. But that's not the qualification in Scripture. The qualifications in Scripture have to do with character. The qualifications within Scripture have to do with spiritual giftedness. Not with a piece of paper on the wall. You know, the second podcast that I listened to asked the question very pointedly, can fallen pastors be restored? Let's take that sentence apart a little bit. Let's take that question apart a little bit. Can fallen pastors, first of all, you know, what does fallen mean? You know, does it mean we've sinned? And, you know, we've already talked about that a little bit. Does it mean that God's opinion has changed of me? Or God's opinion to me has changed in some way? We have to say no. It hasn't. And so fallen from what? Well, I think fallen from the top. Fallen from the top in a top-down system that is assumed to be an accurate reflection of what's in the New Testament. That surely the New Testament must contain or must support this top-down authority structure. And that's what we're referring to, probably, when we say fallen. We've, you know, we've tumbled. We've tumbled from the top down toward the bottom, and we've lost this position of authority, this position of you know, being the hierarchical uh, king or queen in the group. And so we start to scramble to get back to that. We start, we start doing what we can do to put the pieces back together. It's kind of like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. And so we start, you know, kind of scrambling to get ourselves back together. And we start, you know, doing whatever it takes to get back to that position that we've fallen from because we think that that position means something. We think that that position is an accurate reflection of what we see in the New Testament with the church, the ecclesia. But people, it's not there. As I read in Mark 10 earlier, just the opposite is there. There is to be no hierarchical structure, and yet we don't believe that, do we? Or we just choose to ignore it. But again, I ask the question I've asked several times on this podcast, is what part of it shall not be so among you don't we believe? Or what part of it shall not be so among you don't we understand? Because we, we've we certainly turned a deaf ear to it, haven't we? I mean, look around. Look around. Almost every institutional church setting has a hierarchical uh, authority structure, a hierarchy of authority within its walls. And so when the question's asked, can fallen pastors be restored, we're assuming fallen means tumbled from the top. And that the goal is to get back to the top. 
We don't ask this about people with the gift of giving, do we? Can a fallen giver be restored? That just sounds weird, doesn't it? But it's the same kind of a principle. Can a fallen person with hospitality be restored? Well, first of all, what does fallen mean? I mean, we're always coming back to that question. And what does being restored mean? You know, those those two things, those two points have to be answered. But when it comes to pastors and we ask the question, can fallen pastors be restored? It seems normal to us because we've so centralized the pastor. Most of our institutional church settings are pastor-centric. They're pulpit-centric. They're sermon-centric. They all center around this one person, this pastor. And so to ask the question, can fallen pastors be restored, doesn't sound that foreign to us. But put one of these other spiritual gifts in there, and it sounds weird, like Giver Gary. Can fallen givers be restored? And we kind of scratch our head and go, what? But when it comes to asking the question, can fallen pastors be restored, it, it, we don't scratch our head and ask what. We start to say, we start to give an opinion. Well, you know, yes or no, uh, you know, how did this pastor fall, and what does he want to be restored to, and should he be restored, and, you know, on and on and on. Because this hierarchy within the institutional church setting is assumed to be true, but it's not. There's not a shred of evidence in the New Testament for it. But that doesn't keep us from asking the question, can fallen pastors be restored? And as I've mentioned, you know, we have to ask the question, restored to what? Restoring them to Jesus? He didn't leave. Like I said a minute ago, we can't out God's grace and God's opinion of you will never change. Now, there are broken human relationships that certainly need to be addressed. And addressing those is good. Trying to restore those is good. But, you know, restoration and reconciliation isn't always possible. Some of the stuff can get pretty ugly. And reconciliation isn't guaranteed on a human level at all. And so do we mean, can they be restored, you know, to their human relations? Well, that would be nice. That would be good. But it's not always possible. But since hierarchy is assumed to be normal... You know, we see it all around us. We're asking, can a pastor climb back into the pulpit? Can a pastor climb back into that position of having authority over us, of having authority over people? And that question, to me, is, you know, it's irrelevant. When I look at the pages of the New Testament, we're asking, can this person be exalted back into some position that shouldn't be there in the first place? And another symptom of our belief that this hierarchical system of authority should exist within the ecclesia and is somehow valid within the ecclesia or within the church. It's further evidenced by our use of honorific titles, isn't it? We have pastor so-and-so. We have bishop so-and-so. We have archbishop so-and-so. And the, you know, the, the higher the, the ranking goes, the more complex the titles become. But just like having a top-down hierarchical authority in place in the first place, the use of honorific titles is just as bad. Jesus said, don't do that. Let me read Matthew 23 here, verses 1 through 12 to you real quick. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. And I'll stop right there for, for just a second. The reason that Jesus told his disciples to uh, do what the Pharisees said is because they sit on Moses' seat. And at the time, historically, that Jesus spoke this, they were still under the old covenant. And so to not do what Moses said 
would have been sin. But Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses, not to break it. And so he instructed his disciples to do what Moses said, but don't do what the Pharisees do, because the Pharisees are hypocrites. For they preach, he said, but they do not practice. And then verse 4 says, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man on earth your father, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called teachers or instructors, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see what's going on there? Jesus is instructing his disciples not to get caught up in the use of honorific titles. Don't seek to be called teacher or rabbi. Now, obviously the word pastor isn't in there, but the principle applies. Because in the same way that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, so it should be among them, among his followers, among the disciples, the greatest among you shall be your servant. That's the goal. It's a race for the bottom. It's not a race for the top. And so to ask the question is very telling in our day. Can fallen pastors be restored? That just reveals to me a a boatload of incorrect thinking, a boatload of of thinking that is anti-anything in the New Testament concerning the ecclesia, concerning the church. But it fits right in, doesn't it, with what we have in modern institutional church settings, that the pastor is the top dog, the pastor is the CEO in this not-for-profit organization. In this 501c3, the pastor serves as the chief CEO. He's the chief executive officer. He's the one hiring and firing. It's become a career path. It's become a career choice. And we hire people in that career based on whether or not there's a paper on their wall. But that's nowhere in the New Testament. Church tradition has given us that. We've talked about that a lot in this podcast, and we'll continue to, to do so. But let's shift gears here just a little bit. I want to turn our attention back for a few minutes to John Zen's book, A Church Building Every Half Mile, What Makes American Christianity Tick. I've been working through this with you in several of the last episodes, and I want to continue to do so in this one. I want to jump ahead just a tiny bit in it, and I want to move on to uh, section 8 of this book, which is on page 53, section 8. And the question here is, why is there so much focus on the pulpit? What are the what are the distinctives to be proclaimed? And Zenz starts out this chapter by saying this, quote, In line with the focus on the pastor, it can be seen that, that the church service and architecture revolve around the pulpit. The sacred desk is the platform from which the distinctive beliefs of each church are disseminated. If the pastor's charisma is the unique feature of the church, then again the pulpit provides the primary springboard for the expression of this gift. Is this a fair summary? When people come to church, the sermon is the climax of their visit. Everything in the church bulletin leads up to the sermon. If the sermon was missing, people would feel like they hadn't been to church. Without a doubt, the sermon traditionally has been the center point. End of quote. You know, it'd be interesting to try an experiment, wouldn't it? I think of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 
when the church first came together, the church was first formed and the Holy Spirit was, was poured out. They weren't looking for a pastor. They didn't spend their time scrambling around looking for someone to lead them. That wasn't happening. It wasn't pastor-centered at all. And yet, in so many of our institutional church settings, tradition has brought us to a place where we are pastor-centered. We are sermon-centered. We can't function without the pastor. And so it would be nice to try a little experiment where everybody shows up for church on a Sunday except the pastor. And let's see what happens. You know, we would kind of mill around and we wouldn't know what to do. And I think the reason we wouldn't know what to do, at least in part, lies in the fact that church has trained the ecclesia out of us. We don't know how to contribute. We don't know how to have every member functioning. The very thought of that scares us because we're so used to being passive in the pew. But that gets back again. I think that's a a symptom of our thinking of what church is, of what the ecclesia is, that it is pastor-centered and that we have to have the pastor up front, whoever he or she is. They have to be the one leading us, and if they're not there, we're incomplete somehow. We don't know how to practice the 58 one another's apart from the pastor being there. To, to think that way even is difficult for some of us, maybe most of us. But the New Testament knows nothing of the centrality of the pastor. Zenz continues, quote, Here is my question. If you were to read through Matthew to Revelation twice on your knees, where would you find any evidence for or example of the practice of having one person give a sermon behind the pulpit? Since this practice appears to be absent from the New Testament church, why do we get so uptight if the centrality of pulpit preaching is questioned? Doesn't this illustrate and highlight what a tight grip tradition has upon us? End of quote. I think he nailed it there. I think he nailed it that tradition has handed us what we have today, and if someone questions it, like in this podcast, I keep questioning things, it makes some of us uptight. It makes some of us nervous. It gets some of us a little angry, upset, and mad that someone would would question this long-standing tradition. I know that I've talked about the centrality of the pastor and the centrality of the sermon in a previous episode, and I'll probably go ahead in this episode, put a link in the show notes to the same article that, the same articles that I wrote that I put in those episodes, just so you have it again as a point of convenience to pull it up and look at it. Because I think it's critical. I think that, I think it's at the heart of the issue. I think the question, can a pastor be restored, is, is symptomatic of the fact that we believe and we are convinced that our time together in the church, in the ecclesia, in the assembly, is supposed to be, by design, pastor-centric. But it's not. It's to be Jesus-centric. It's to be Holy Spirit-led and unpredictable to some point. It's to be spontaneous to some point. But when we walk into a setting in the modern evangelical church today, what you're probably going to get is handed a bulletin where everything is lined up in order and you know exactly what's going to happen. I don't even need a bulletin. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. And there won't be any surprises. There won't be any dialogue. There won't be any conversation. It'll be one-way communication from a pulpit to you, from a pastor to you. And you'll get the pastor's opinion of something, but if you have any questions about it, you know, good luck getting those out. You know, try raising your hand. Try standing up and say, wait a minute, I got a question. I think maybe that's a little bit wrong, or I think maybe 
that's an error in some way. I mean, stand up and do that, and you'll you know you'll find yourself being exited or being escorted to the nearest exit, to the nearest door, because that disrupts the flow of what the tradition says we have to have, which is one person speaking one one person speaking within the ecclesia, uninterrupted, giving their opinion, and we we think that that's the way it is. But Zenz continues on page 54, I think, with some valid points. He says this, quote, If the pastor behind a pulpit isn't revealed in the New Testament, then what is? Looking at the big picture, we can note that there are 58 one another's in the New Testament, but nothing about one person leading the church. The most comprehensive information about a gathering of believers is found in 1 Corinthians 14. There is no one leading from up front in this meeting. There is nothing about a sermon being given. It is a body event, with participation open to everyone. Each one of you has a song, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. You may all prophesy one by one. That's verses 26 through 31 of 1 Corinthians 13. The guiding perspective in this multiple participation is, Let all things be done for the building up of the body. Verse 26, end of quote. Wow, that's valid. That's something that we don't see. We don't see every member functioning. We don't see all of us able to prophesy one by one. We don't see all of us being able to exercise our gifts when we come together. We see the one person, one pulpit centrality within the church, the ecclesia. We don't see let all things be done for the building up of the body. We see one thing being done, but not all things, because all things can't happen in that setting. Zenz continues on the bottom of page 54 by quoting William Barclay. He says, William Barclay noted that 1 Corinthians 14, 26-33, quote, sheds a flood of light on what an early church service was like. There was obviously great freedom and an informality about it. There was obviously a flexibility about the order of service in the early church, end of quote. And then Zenz continues, One question I have is, why have we traded the blessings of the open meeting described in 1 Corinthians 14 for a service that revolves around a pulpit and the pastor behind it? We confess that the New Testament is our source of the Lord's direction in our personal lives and in our church life. Why is the revelation in 1 Corinthians 14 totally discarded in our church meetings? What is our justification for structuring meetings that are in total contradiction to what is unfolded in 1 Corinthians 14? We have elevated and canonized that for which there is no warrant, and thus suppressed and turned a deaf ear to what has been revealed. This is precisely what Jesus said would happen when human traditions intrude into our existence. Quote, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. End of quote. That's Mark 7, verse 9 and verse 13. Zenz continues, Is 1 Corinthians 14 a revelation that can be set aside lightly in order to practice our pulpit-centered services? End of quote. And I think that's a valid question to ask. And I think that the, that the question that I heard in the two podcasts, can pastors, can fallen pastors be restored, is symptomatic 
of this very thing of what's going on. That we've set aside what we see in the New Testament as as the example of how an ecclesia operates in favor of tradition that's been handed down to us, starting as early as probably around 110 A.D. with Ignatius, when he said, don't let anything be done in the church without the bishop present. By 250 A.D., that was firmly in place in almost every ecclesia. And then along comes Constantine, you know, around 325, A.D. 325, and he he weds the church and the state together, where all of a sudden, you know, the idea of, of an elder or pastor is a career path, and the church is wed to the state, and so not only... And so not only has the church become a top-down authority structure, it now wields the sword of the state. And so obedience is coerced based on threat of death, threat of punishment. And all of those within a geographic setting, within a geographical area, are considered part of the church in that area, whether they personally believe or not. And the coercion begins, and the top-down authority takes off, and people are put to death for disagreeing. That's a topic there that we need to talk about a lot coming up. So Lord willing, we'll be able to do that. But as the church became state-run, starting especially under Constantine, and it just kind of took off from there, the whole idea of a pastor in charge and a pastor having authority really took off and had the blessing of the state. And the state and the church were actually one. Unfortunately, at the time of the Reformation, the Reformers didn't set that aside. The Anabaptists tried to, but they were killed for it. Many of them were martyred because of their view of believers' baptism, as opposed to infant baptism. Infant baptism at the time made the inclusion of everyone in a geographical area a part of that church. Well, the Anabaptists disagreed with it, but they didn't have the sword. The Reformers did. And so conflict resulted, and people died, because they weren't conforming to what the top-down authority structure said needed to be done. Fortunately, we don't have that situation anymore, but we still have that top-down authority, don't we? We still have that top-down authority that must be listened to and obeyed. And again, I think that question, can a fallen pastor be restored, is symptomatic of what's going on, and is symptomatic of how we view church today. We don't question whether or not this top-down authority should be there. We assume it's correct. We assume it's true. We assume it's valid. And so we attempt to answer the question based on our assumption that, yeah, somebody's got to be in charge. But nobody should be in charge, according to the words of our Lord. It shall not be so among you. So that's all I have uh, for this time, for this week, for this episode. I really appreciate you guys sticking with me. And staying with me as I work through some of this stuff, it's good to be able to talk it out. It's good to be able to verbalize some of what I'm thinking. And I appreciate you guys coming along. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me online at unsunday.com, unsunday.com. And if you are enjoying what's going on here, please tell someone, tell a friend, pass this on. And if you could, slide over to iTunes and give me a review there. You don't have to necessarily say anything, but I'd appreciate, you know, some stars. So anyway, until next time, y'all take care. Bye.